0: Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing?
1: I'm doing great. We got Jeremy on again.
0: We do. We're, this is part two of our interview with Jeremy Padower. We are going to be talking about collectibles. So sit back because I think you're going to be really impressed about what you're going to learn and what the potential is for toy companies. Jeremy, welcome back.
2: I would like to
1: ask
2: collector Jeremy a question. Yeah. Hold on, let me put on a different hat.
1: <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> now I'm the fanboy. Woohoo! Let's go. You are one of the
1: most important people in the world of Pokemon, and you are a major, major Pokemon collector. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a Pokemon collector and what's it like being a star in the world of Pokemon?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, that is a, that. well, th- first of all, thank you uh, for that. I appreciate that. You know, I'm a collector, I'm a collector in general, and I tend to, you know, it's almost like you're a doctor, but you subspecialize in certain things. So I, I'm a collector in general, and one of my subspecialties is Pokemon, right? Okay. Um, I had very specific insight on Pokemon early on. In 2006, when I was at Jack Specific. we got the brand from Hasbro. And Hasbro was being very pragmatic. 1999, Pokemon came to being in the United States. Uh, It was a rocket ship, and it had backed down in the mid-2000s. And when we came in, my whole theory and philosophy and vision was, let's invest in it. Let's really lean into it. What I was unaware of is that timing worked in my favor because they were introducing a new generation of Pokemon around the time that we decided to invest and create new characters. When I saw the new generation of Pokemon paired with an investment grow the Pokemon business literally 700% in one year, it opened my eyes to the power of what Pokemon might be one day. Okay. So in 2007, eight, I started watching the secondary market for collectibles and Pokemon, which means whenever you study a market, especially a collector market, the key is understanding the grails in that market, the most valuable and interesting items within that market and watching how they trade. It doesn't matter if you're talking about sneakers or if you're talking about Pokemon or you're talking about sports cards or autographs or other memorabilia or comic books or whatever it may be, coins, it doesn't matter. Know your 10 to 20 key items and you can track the valuation of those key items over time. Okay, And you can draw a lot of conclusions from that. So I was watching Pokemon, you know, 10, 12 years ago and watching the valuations change year after year and drawing some conclusions from that. And one of the conclusions that I drew was, my goodness, the 10 year old in 1999 is 20. They have a little bit of access to capital now and they're spending it on Pokemon. What the heck? That's crazy. That's interesting. So I drew some further thoughts from that, which was one day these 20-year-olds are going to be 30, and one day the 30-year-olds are going to be 40. And if that interest remains and that access to capital only grows, we're going to see some real landmark things happen in Pokemon. So I collected a little bit of Pokemon uh, before collecting Pokemon was cool. And then in 2019, I went a little nuts, and I decided to deploy a million dollars into Pokemon specifically as a collector, not as a licensee. And I was very open about this. This is not something that you do lightly. This is something that you say, I'm a collector and I manufacture other stuff, okay? It just is what it is. Accept it. That's who I am. I am me. Accept me as I am. I'll never do anything underhanded, but this is what I'm doing very much in open. Uh, and I was shocked Because my belief and my plan was that the million dollar Pokemon investment would see a 10 times return in 10 years. That was the plan. That was the idea. That's what I said. That's what I spoke about. That's what I was communicating to others. It may not come about. Maybe it'll be one time return. Maybe it'll be a zero time return. Maybe it goes to nothing, right? Maybe things happen. You know, you plan and bigger entities than you laugh. But in the scheme of things, my timing was excellent because- There's a lot of things that are happening in collectibles where you can really track valuation. And I'm going to touch on that in a second. But valuations from from 2019 to 2021 absolutely blew up, just went through the roof. And I'll explain why. There are fundamentally two things that have made collectibles a specific part of one's diversified asset portfolio. Number one, eBay... And other marketplaces show every single transaction that they do, okay? So you can track, you can look up anything, and you can look up historical transactions, and you can see that a 1999 first edition Red Cheeks Pikachu PSA 10 has done the following over the last 18-month period, okay? So you can follow not only an asset, but you can follow the asset, any asset, and really look at it. There's other things like Well Worth Point there's other very clear ways to identify valuation and track valuation. The second thing that happened was that grading services really came into vogue where a trading card wasn't just a trading card, but you could get a trading card graded by PSA and it could come back to you with a grade, a perfect 10 all the way down to a one, which is very poor. And by doing that and stratifying every single collectible that you can think of, because there's grading services for stamps and coins and comic books and books. And, and you turn what once was a collectible into an artifact that's been graded, slabbed forever and is not going to turn into a worse item for your portfolio because it's protected. So you can look at rarity and then you can look at the subset of rarity by grade and you can track the valuation And it makes it turns collectibles into a very clear asset class for investment. So I didn't just put money and focus on Pokemon. I focused on other areas as well. I just happened to focus on Pokemon specifically because of my desire and love for the brand. And you know, look, especially after we sold the company uh, and I stayed on the leadership team, I wanted to be very clear that I'm not going anywhere. So if if I'm deploying capital into things that have always meant something to me, it would send a signal to everybody that this is where I want to be. And, uh, and that's my mindset. I'm, I am, I'm the type of personality that, that walks the walk. And, um, but that's a long story short why I'm into Pokemon. And what I didn't fully expect was that I would have so much engagement around collectability. And I've really leaned into that engagement. I mean, Over the course of COVID, all of a sudden, 200,000 people found me interesting. And, uh, And that was cool. Like, that was like really cool. Like, you know, me, I've always wanted to be known. I mean, I won't make any qualms about it, but I didn't fully have a plan. And I'm very excited that, you know, people are interested in what I have to say about collectibles and the collector asset base.
0: What I find fascinating about what you've said is not only do you love the brand, not only do you engage with the characters and the stories and the mythos. But you also see it as an asset class, and I, I have not heard that expressed that way before, and I find that very
2: fascinating. Absolutely. And, and you know what? Barbie is an asset class. Hot Wheels is an asset class. But, but really what it is, is collectibles in general are an asset class that should be treated very, very much like that and requires people who have very specific knowledge and vision Uh, just like you have in stocks and real estate and other areas and capacities, to say to you, look, the world offers all kinds of pitfalls. And if you're 100% into anything, if you're 100% into real estate, or you're 100% into Bitcoin, or you're 100% into Pokemon cards, or you're 100% into anything, it's a pretty good idea to learn about other things and to diversify. And I think what's happened in the last couple of years very specifically is, more sophisticated investors have come in and they've said hey this roi is intense uh, this brand affinity concept and the idea, the idea of and the upgrading grading all these things it's an intense concept they may not entirely get it or understand it but they certainly see 250,000 people showing up to comic con right and so you have essentially an asset class into its own in collectibles and to diversify within the asset class means to go into many sub collectible areas And put a little capital. And if if you love comic books, or if you love reading, or you love whatever. So, for instance, I bought a Harry Potter first edition, first print book. And uh, it was a hardback book. And this Harry Potter book is probably the most pristine of the 500 that were ever published. Because the 500 books, when the author published them, she was an unknown. And this book went to 500 people including 300 libraries and 200 young people. So most of these hardback books, first edition, first print, were absolutely destroyed. They were blown up in various ways. Uh, so when I got my opportunity to buy some Harry Potter memorabilia, I went after a holy grail. And you know what? I, I Again, my objective, 10 times return in 10 years. We'll see, who knows? But I, I love brands like Potter. I love brands like Pokemon. I love brands where you can see a 20-year history and identify valuations have gone up because if you can do that, there's generally stating a point of real tension where you all of a sudden have real serious investment and things tend to go ballistic in terms of valuation.
0: You, you bring up a really interesting point because the reason that a 1959 mint in-box blonde Barbie can fetch $20,000 it's because yeah. Bar- bargain,
2: it, by the way. Right. right. Bargain. Yeah. yeah.
0: It is because it wasn't played with. Now, there might be a sad story behind that, but <laughs> I always think but it's because these things were designed to be loved. And those 200 Harry Potter books were absorbed by the kids. So and Absolutely. I and I love the idea. So what I want to ask is, is there a way that a toy company today in 2021 can look at 2031, 2041, and begin to set the stage for something that could be an asset class for them in for two decades of growth?
2: Yes, of course. Yes. So for instance, uh, if you look at brands like Minecraft and Roblox and these brands that are 10, 15 years old, you can identify individual items that are just starting to show some real collector appeal you can look at things like Stranger Things and you can look at things like uh, Twilight and identify that you know, the kids that were really into it are now 20. And again, they're going to be 30 and 40. So my whole philosophy around collectibles is to look at the brands that are 10 years old and to see what's happening. And then to really look at the 20-year-old brands and get a much better concept. Because something happens between 20 and 25 and it sort of blows your mind. Uh, interestingly enough, with Barbie, I've often felt like the brand's impact versus what's happening at the highest end of the collector universe there is mismatched. And it's, it's no fault of Mattel. It's just an opportunity. Because one day, that $20,000 Barbie that you're talking about is going to be a million-dollar item. So maybe after we get off the call, I'm going to go find it and buy it. I just wanted to know that. <laughs>
1: okay, sounds good. I think I would be remiss, and we would be remiss, not to talk about the fact that there was the big teddy bear crash Uh, I think it was uh, around 2000 where Thai Beanie Babies just lost pretty much all its value. And then prior to that, we had the big baseball card collapse that had taken place. And and in both those cases, uh, there were people who really did invest on those uh, with the intention of paying for the children's college education. And there was a major documentary that was done on Beanie Babies. So I fully appreciate what you're saying as far as being an asset class. But these are all intangible. I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on what caused those collapses. And do you feel that these markets are more mature now? Or is there still a risk of a product running out of steam as a class of collectibles?
2: I'll take that one at a time, okay? So number one, let's talk about the, the card market from 1986 to around 1991, okay? So that is a terrible era for card collecting because manufacturers went nuts and they over-manufactured product to a massive degree to capture every possible piece of demand. But they also didn't have a real plan for long-term value. The cards that were manufactured in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s were never manufactured with such a massive demand behind them. And so, and they were played with and they were beat up and they were not held as perfect. And so the higher end product has massive appeal forever. There's a period of time from 1986 to the early 90s where the card companies were over manufacturing and they didn't manufacture limited edition chaser cards of any kind or sort. They didn't manufacture any special things that retained its value. And as a result, most of the product from that era is valueless forever. Okay, but what happened was in the 90s, the card companies maybe accidentally came across this or maybe not. They started manufacturing rarity. They started realizing that they would have their main line set, that they could create to whatever the level of demand was. So if demand is 100, they'll create to 100. But that internally on that set, they would do special limited edition chaser cards. And these cards would be produced at a fraction, a very small fraction of the demand. No matter how big the demand got, they would only produce a certain amount of the rare materials. As a result of that, they saved over the course of time the entire card industry Because today, rarity, when it comes to collecting, is captured in those more limited edition sets. And if you have a whole box of cards in front of you, where only a couple in the entire box are those rare cards, it makes every single pack within that box valuable because you may be opening up your lottery ticket. And so it changed the entire course of sports cards collecting. So interestingly enough, except for a few years, you you have a very viable meaningful long-term collector strategy with the vintage stuff because it is of its in and of itself very much collector and rarity is key and then once they started producing mass producing rarity they saved the entire business and it is where it is today because of that and they can continue that model for ever really now when it comes to tie and beanie babies you know i i will tell you i would challenge you to look on eBay at sold auctions and make up your own mind as to whether there's a market, because I see a market. And I will tell you, especially in the higher end, it's done quite well, even seen growth from a collectible standpoint. So the, the thing that I would say, forget tie and forget everything else for a moment, from a collectible standpoint, from a collectible standpoint, if you want to hedge your bets as a collector you go to the higher end of that collector asset base. Don't go and collect all the common cards. Go collect some of the rarer cards. And if you want to take a risk, take a risk on some of the younger players and the rarer cards, because they're your next superstars and no one knows it yet. There are strategies behind every single collectible class. And there are certainly collectible classes that have cratered over time, where the interest certainly has waned. But for the most part, collectibles is an investment. And with the concept of tracking valuations and the concept of having graded uh, issues, it has truly changed the entire strategy of collecting. So uh, if you love Thai Beanie Babies, it's a viable collector class. If you love cards, it's a viable collector class. But spend some time studying and understand the pitfalls and challenges behind any collectible when you go into these things.
0: Okay, Jeremy, we're going to ask you the question we ask everybody on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. Oh, man. Okay.
2: Okay, so here's a secret. And it's a secret that I hope inspires people because every story can be told through the lens of where you end up. And so I've ended up successful financially, and I can very easily tell you, that I'm successful because I've had success after success after success. But here's the secret. The secret is I have failed more than I've succeeded. And in failure, I've learned a tremendous amount. And even though a lot of the failure had been painful along the way, I feel like my batting average has gotten better and better and better as we've gone forward. And I've learned so much through that process. So what I'm hopeful for is that people who are looking to be entrepreneurial or people that are looking to invest in something or take risks, just know that you really accumulate a lot of knowledge along the way that minimizes the failure and minimizes your uh, and maximizes your ability to see the opportunities, but that all of us are subject to opportunities that look great and don't end up being great. And sometimes they're 100% within your control and that's okay. And that's the secret. The secret is there's a lot of failure behind the success.
0: <laughs> that That is great. This is the Playground Podcast and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap where Richard and I talk about issues that are affecting the toy industry and Richard, the toy industry's always been a family-oriented business, but we're in the midst of what you call a generational shift. What's up with that?
1: Yeah, you know, Chris, back in 2014, I know the date because I wrote an article at the time, I was in Hong Kong and I was packing up and I realized that as I had walked the streets, all the people in the toy industry I saw had gray hair. And if it wasn't gray, they were dying. And that I realized there were just no young people walking around. And when when I say young, I'm talking people maybe in their 20s and early 30s. Well, what I was witnessing was the beginning of a pattern in which younger people are not entering sales as a career path. And uh, I'm going to read you a, a short quote. From the Wall Street Journal, the article is called The Pay is High and Jobs are Plentiful if You Want to Go into Sales. And it reads, the struggle to find sales hires predates the pandemic and may have more to do with the types of roles people are comfortable taking these days than it does with a shortage of workers. Images of glad-handing car salesmen or madmen-style account representatives are hard to shake, Recruiters say adding that early career hires, hires aren't always attracted to positions where success is measured in new business brought in. So this is a quite a, a shift from a time when sales was, was seen as a, a great way to move up the ladder and, and you could be as successful as how hard you worked and how good you were at it. So I think this is going to be an increasing problem for, for companies, consumer product companies and toy industry, in which uh, we have a shortage of salespeople. How are we going to sell our products?
0: It's an interesting question. When I started out in my career, first in publishing and then in toys, nobody got into the C-suite who hadn't had a role in sales and whether it was college textbooks or toys, that was one way you really established your knowledge of the market and all of the infrastructure of the retail. But I do think at this point we do see some changes as retail outlets have contracted. There's not as many people. There's not as many doors or organizations that people can sell to. And I know younger guys who are running their own toy companies who are also handling the sales. So there's not necessarily in some of these smaller, younger, more entrepreneurial companies, there isn't a divided sales force per se. I
1: think there's another element to all of this, Chris. And and I have been really preaching this for maybe 20 years now. You see how much good I've done. <laughs> uh, Aww. The in that is sales is not treated. Uh, by the university and college systems as a profession. It's treated as a vocation. No one teaches selling. And if you have been involved in sales, you know it is extremely intricate. It calls for a great deal of emotional intelligence and intellect and hard work and preparation. And for that reason, I think that because it is perceived as a vocation, it doesn't have status like having a marketing degree it would really be helpful if our educational institutions are treated as very very vital part of business with some respect
0: indeed yes and it and it's part of the supply chain and one of the things i'm seeing in the younger executives that are coming up is that they are intently data driven. You're not going to get a sale sort of in the way that Willie Lohman did in Death of the Salesman by going in and shaking hands and having a relationship with people. And even for him, that was starting to be obsolete in the the late 40s. So it really is, as you say, it's an intricate and complicated process that has to match product with retailer, with data. And you know,
1: it's not easy. I once pointed out that Walmart's gross revenue would probably make it like in the, the the number 20 nation in the world if it was GDP. But we don't send a salesman to France. We send an ambassador. We need to think of the sales role as more of an ambassadorial role, which calls for not just being aggressive and aggressive selling your company's product, which is certainly virtuous, but figuring out what's going on within the company you're calling on and reporting that back to your management and making relationships at various levels within the company. In other words, what really good ambassadors do.
0: Right. It's going to be increasingly important as the market continues to evolve. It gets more crowded. There are more options for people. And it really is a skill that needs to be developed. And I do think that one of the things that's going to have to change in toy companies as education becomes more and more expensive is we're going to go have to go back to more of a mentorship type of arrangement within companies. I learned this toy industry because people who'd been in it a while took me under their wing back when I was in my 20s at CBS. And they showed me what a factory was. They showed me what all the processes were. And it's not something I ever studied in school, but it was something that I learned at the, at the feet and the desks of people who'd been doing it for
1: years. Absolutely correct. So I think we need to keep our eyes on this. We uh, need to keep our eyes on, as you well put, there are fewer customers out there right now. Uh, there are optional ways to interact with them. But I truly do believe, Chris, that salespeople are, are really the lubrication. When a company pushes up against a retailer, There needs to be some lubrication in there to keep the relationship going. And that's the salesperson's job.
0: Right, indeed, yes. So if you're listening to this and you're looking for a job, there's probably good ones to be had in sales and let us know what you think. So this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy marketing and media agency Chiscom. If you like this, please share it with your friends and come see us at the playgroundpodcast.com and tune in next time.